Good evening and a warm welcome back to our series marked out for fruitfulness. And this is talk number six. And we're continuing in Mark chapter one, verse 40. And tonight we find that the spotlight goes on healing. In point of fact, if you were to open your Bible somewhat at random to a page in one of the first three Gospels, what's known as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, there's an extremely high chance that you would find Jesus either in the middle of healing someone or walking towards healing someone or coming away from having just healed someone. In other words, healing is mainstream to his life's work, not marginal. Uh, let's have a look at the first encounter, shall we? Jesus heals a man with leprosy. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. I'll read it. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. And yet people still came to him from everywhere. I think some of the pain of the man with leprosy could easily pass us by. Leprosy was a disease with horrible consequences. Actually, a word that's translated leprosy here is something of an umbrella term, and it, it covered a range of diseases. All of them were extremely unpleasant, very painful for whoever was suffering. And it could range from extreme leprosy with horribly disfiguring contortions and conditions where the, the limbs would become twisted and deformed to a condition which is much nearer to what we would call a skin condition. But they all, they all had significant physical pain and they all carried with them a requirement to keep your distance. You became an outcast and hence we have the phrase a leper, don't we, in that sense. And Jesus goes to, or, or the man goes to Jesus rather, and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And it's an interesting statement, really. It's not a question of, can you do it? For this man, it's a question of, I know you can do it, but will you want to do it and will you do it? Now, my up-to-date New International Version translates the next verse, verse 41, Jesus was indignant. And I don't often take issue with uh, the way words are translated but for years and years the acceptable translation of that word was filled with compassion and i think that's much nearer to the mark than indignant jesus's heart broke for him is what it means jesus was deeply moved he wasn't indifferent it is not um, condescension it, it's not pity in a bad way it, it's empathy pity it's right from his gut he felt what the leper felt. And what he did next, what Jesus did next, would have staggered the disciples. 
he reached out his hand and he touched the man. Wow. Why do I say wow? Well, not only because of a risk of contagion of Jesus catching this hugely contagious disease, but perhaps even more surprising that he did it because to touch a leper was for everyone else really to defile yourself. And at this point, I want to divert to a conversation that I had with a very eccentric, a retired elderly vicar. When I first went to work in Salisbury, I'd been tipped off. There was this lovely man called John Lefroy, and uh, he lived in the close in Salisbury. And, and a friend of mine said, I hope you meet John, and I hope that you really hit it off with him. He is very eccentric, and he can fire odd questions at you, but don't be put off. Well, I came to like this chap very much indeed, but they were absolutely right what they said about him, because one afternoon he just said to me, apropos nothing, Rupert, do you know the difference between holy and most holy? And he was delighted that I looked completely flummoxed. And he said, well, let me tell you. He said, if you read the Old Testament carefully, you will discover when they lay out about the temple and the temple arrangements and everything else, that if an object was holy and you touched the holy object, then you contaminated that object and it lost its holiness. But, he said with a look of great triumph, if you touched a most holy object, it works the other way around and you become holy, it does not become defiled. Now there you are, that, that's a good bit of Bible trivia, isn't it? Well, not necessarily trivia either, because that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus, who is most holy, touches the leper and he becomes holy, he becomes clean. Immediately, verse 42, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. See how it's working out? And then let's notice the aftercare. Jesus says to him, go show yourself to a priest. Why? Well, there are a good many reasons why, and we're told some of them. Why? Because the priest was the person who could certify you were no longer contagious. It was a sort of, he was a COVID testing station equivalent, if you like. But secondly, go and see the priest to offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded to fulfill the law. There's no way that Jesus was going to abandon the law. And thirdly, and this is, this is really quite telling, as a testimony to the priests. Why a testimony, do you think? I'll tell you why. Most likely the priests would have recognized and remembered a, a chapter, an incident in the Old Testament from 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 actually, when the king of Aram sends a letter to the king of Israel, and this is what the letter says, with this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you can cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? He's trying to pick a quarrel with me. And aha, uh -huh. so what's going on is the king recognized, I'm not God, I can't do this. It's not in my power to heal someone. Of course, Elisha could. And now this leper goes to the priest in Jesus' time and says, I've been healed. And they would have clocked his letter and said, oh, my goodness, well, who could do this for you? What? Somebody called Jesus. 
it was a testimony, wasn't it, to the divinity of Jesus. Now, capping this story off, just quickly to note, as Mark notes, sadly, the man with leprosy did not do what he was asked to do. He couldn't keep it quiet, and I must say, who could blame him? And now Jesus has a crowd control problem on top of everything else. And people still keep coming to him from all over the shop. Now, let's hurry on, because uh, I want to cover a lot of ground tonight, to the story of a paralyzed man, chapter two. And again, I feel I have to read it, otherwise you won't know that I'm not making it up. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So the men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of a crowd, they made an opening in the roof above, above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. Aha, uh -huh, there's a, a point in passing. How did he know that? I think that's a spiritual gift of uh, discerning spirits and word of knowledge. That's how he knew. They didn't say it, but he knew what was going on in their hearts, picking it up again. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up and he took his mat and he walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, says this could very well have been Jesus' own house that was unroofed, which has uh, quite a, a nice little uh, twist to it. Can you imagine? I'm not sure I can really. They unroofed the roof is, is the way Mark puts it. And uh, they let this man down on his mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, presumably the faith of the four men, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And this was incendiary. As the teachers of the law recognized straight away. Now we need to back up a little if we're going to appreciate what's going on here. And without the help of the Old Testament, frankly, we really wouldn't have a clue what's going on. I think you could say that two of the main themes, not the only themes, but two of the main themes in the Old Testament and the New are number one, revealing to us what God is like, which you and I can't guess, or if you like, you can guess, but if you guess, you'll guess wrong. And secondly, by asking the question in the Old and New Testament, so who can get near this God? Well, what is God like? Well, the word for it, the one word I suppose is this, holy. He is perfection. He is perfect love. He's all powerful. He's completely just. He's all knowing. He is quite different from us, his creatures. And there is a huge barrier between us and God. We can't get near him 
unless he makes it possible. Why? Because we prove ourselves unfit for his presence time and time again. And the Bible's picture of us is not flattering, as you know, but it is truthful. And there are all sorts of ways of putting this. And I think the way I might put it tonight is something like this, that involuntarily, without trying, our template is to make ourselves the center picture and to push God to the extremes, if anywhere. And what I'm describing here is what the Bible calls sin. But I go a long way, actually, as a disciple to avoid using that word sin in conversation, because I think it's much more commonly misunderstood than understood. But nevertheless, once you do understand it, it is a, a, a word which has a defined meaning. Let me read you what Jim Packer of Knowing God fame uh, writes about this. I, I think it's, it's quite helpful. To say that our first need in life is to learn about sin might sound strange, says Packer, but it is true. If you haven't learned about sin, you cannot understand yourself or those around you or the world you live in or the Christian faith. And you'll not be able to make head or tail of a Bible. For the Bible is an exposition of God's answer to the problem of human sin. And unless you have that problem clearly before you, you'll keep missing the point of what it says. Apart from the first two chapters of Genesis, which set the stage, the real subject of every chapter of the Bible is what God does about our sins. Lose sight of this theme and you lose your way in the Bible at once. And I was just thinking to myself, uh, I'm reading through the book of Exodus as it happens in the mornings in my quiet time. And you don't read very much of the book of Exodus before you quickly grasp something of the dilemma. You encounter a God who is supremely powerful and you can't just amble into his company. There's an incredibly complex, elaborate system in place, not least the whole business of atonement at one moment. How do you get close to God? How do you atone for your sins? And the answer back in the Old Testament is, well, the priests made representation to God for you. And the teachers here in Mark chapter two are not wrong in what they say, are they? Who can forgive sins but God alone, they say to themselves. No one. And they're right to say that. But the thing is with their thinking, their thinking went on like this. So since this person isn't God, what he's saying is blasphemous. It, it, they were unwilling to see or they were unable to accept or perhaps all of it that there was a possibility that maybe this guy did have the authority because he was God. And what happens next is Jesus completely skewers them. He says to them, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven? Well, they've already said no one can say that apart from God. And we definitely not God. We can't say that. Or get up your mat and walk. And they knew they couldn't say that because it would be completely pointless. They were powerless to pull such a work off. They could do neither. He could do both. And he does. He says, just so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, pick up your mat and go home. Off you go. Incidentally, that little phrase, Son of Man, that, that sets scholars um, spilling a lot of ink over exactly what that means. It could just mean Jesus uses it like a phrase, meaning this is what I say. But it, it 
Equally plausibly and much more exciting to think that he's referring back to Daniel chapter seven, in which a figure is, is mentioned, the son of man who will come with great authority and in, bring in the kingdom of God. And well, both would be perfectly acceptable in referring to Jesus and talking about this story. But as we read this story, I want to make just a few little points in, in closing, really, before I, I give us the questions for small groups. Just be careful as you read the story not to do a couple of things. Don't subliminate the physical healing by stressing the importance of the forgiveness of sins instead. Don't just sort of so focus on forgiveness of sins, you don't notice that this guy's physically healed because that was important. The second thing we shouldn't do is don't subliminate the importance of forgiveness of sins by overemphasizing the importance of physical healing. Because clearly, forgiveness of sins was enormously important too. They're both super important. And Jesus does both. So here are the questions for us to enjoy in small groups. At least explore. I hope you enjoy them. I, I propose three questions. Uh, the first question is this. Chapter two, verse 17 records for us that the people said to one another after the paralyzed man was healed, we've never seen anything like this. But my question is, have you ever witnessed or experienced a physical healing as a result of prayer? Question two, how do you feel about the whole topic of healing in a Christian context, e.g. prayer for healing? And question three, if you have time, but you might not, how do you know your sins are forgiven?